Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir LS version 0.6.3 was released. Support was added for go-to implementations and peak implementations, which is super handy. You know, those are things that you see and are easily exposed in VS Code. Also is support for ASDF installed via Homebrew on macOS, so that should be a benefit. And also some more stability fixes. There's a new editor config file that can be supported and, and respected for its config setup. So uh, you check out the show notes for a link on the full changelog for that. Codebeam America conference will be virtual again this year. It'll be held March 10th through the 12th, and tickets are on sale. They've already released the speaker lineup, so check it out. Obin 2.4.0 was released, and there are a couple bigger improvements, and those are particularly around performance and when you're dealing at scale. So if you're using Obin in production and you're operating any kind of scale, this is certainly definitely something you want to check out. Uh, there's some nice little performance graphs that show some of the impacts and how it will just kind of level out that load. Very cool. If I remember right, it has everything to do with indexes. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Uh, if you're a fan of uh, Tailwind CSS, you might appreciate knowing that there is a Tailwind generator out there. Check the show notes for the link to that. The details around this, though, um, is is that it's a Tailwind generator for for scaffolds. So if you're just starting your project up, this this isn't the generator for you. It doesn't it doesn't help you start the project. But if you have a project already and you want to scaffold like the HTML pages up with uh, Tailwind classes, uh, then give this a shot. Also in the Tailwind news, um, there is a PR out for the Tailwind site to add instructions for Phoenix on how to install Tailwind CSS uh, to your Phoenix project. So hopefully we'll get to see that here soon. But the good news is, is that it's coming. Uh, so that's uh, that's very exciting. Also, Phoenix is getting a little bit more modern with JavaScript. Uh, Evan Yu of Vite and Vue fame uh, got a PR merged into Elixir Phoenix. And this PR helps uh, expose the Phoenix uh, ES modules, ECMAScript modules. This makes it work better with modern bundlers like Vite, uh, Snowpack, and probably others. Uh, and in the last time I checked, I think LiveView still needs this update, so it's just the Phoenix side right now. Uh, but pretty cool to see progress being made on, on that side. Uh, really exciting stuff. And pretty freaking exciting that Evan Yu is paying attention to, to Phoenix. Nice. And a new temporary mini section. We got some feedback, and I would love to get more feedback in the future. So just to kind of share what this is, is previously we talked about how cool it would be to have a Phoenix new generator that set up Tailwind CSS and AlpineJS for you. Not that it's hard, but it is a lot of kind of boilerplate config crossing multiple different files. And so Neil Berkman shared with us to let us know about the site fullstackphoenix.com, where they have Phoenix boilerplates. And it's nice because you have some little just radio kind of buttons to say, yes, I want Tailwind CSS. Yes, I want AlpineJS and click to make it live view. And then boom, you've got a pedal stack. So it's something easy to try out and get started with. Personally, I would love to still see something where it's like on my command line where it's a Phoenix new and it's built in there either with some flags or something like that. But I think it's great that we're heading in that direction. If you've been wanting to try pedal stack out and you don't want to go through the whole setup thing, you can just give this a shot and play with it. As following on that, though, we'd love to have some more feedback from you. So if you would like to share anything with us, you can tweet us at ThinkingElixir on Twitter or the contact page on ThinkingElixir.com and let us know. And that's it for the news. Today, we have a very special guest. 
Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, is with us to finally reveal what Project NX is. Now, if you have just recently arrived at the party, let me kind of explain what's been going on. For some time now, Jose has been hinting at a special secret project he's been working on. He's shown some impressive benchmarks and given before and after times, all while not revealing what this big project is. And he's continued dropping hints and teases. Eventually, he even revealed the name and a logo for the project, calling it NX. Jose is scheduled to speak in depth about this secret project at the Lambda Days conference in February, which we're all looking forward to. Now, he has come to finally publicly reveal what this secret project is and what he's been working on. Jose, we are thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. I'll bet it's been fun for you, just like teasing this for so long and seeing all the people guessing what it is and not saying anything, like even if they're warm or not. So please, <laughs> this, is, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Introduce <laughs> us. What is this thing you've been working on? What is NX? Right. Uh, no, you, you, won't, you won't get it that easily. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to talk about it a little bit more. So, so I just want to be clear that uh, this was not initially intentional. <laughs> so when, when I published the benchmarks, it was like we were just experimenting with some ideas that I wouldn't know it would pan out. But the benchmarks, they were so impressive. And those were initial benchmarks. We improved those numbers. But the initial benchmarks, they were so impressive that I was like, this is exciting. I was excited about it. So I just shared because of that. But then people got so excited and they started guessing things. And then, you know, and some things they were, I was like, oh, no, it isn't this, but this is like a good idea. So, <laughs> so from that, it just built, you know, like, and, and I was like, this is fun. <laughs> I'm going to, I, I'm going to do this more because this is fun, but it was not initially. But before we get to that, I, I would like to hear from the three of you what you think it is, or no, actually even better, uh, what you think it was, because I bet your opinion changed over time. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And just to refresh us, like the, the benchmarks, uh, the kind of scale of the benchmarks we're talking about was like you, you were comparing strings, you know, so that's one X and then quote this other thing, <laughs> which was something like, a, if I remember right, was it 3000 times faster, 45, you know, 100 times faster. So it was incredibly, you know, fast. And so when I first saw that, my first thought was, you know, the, the way that you do uh, binary matching. You know, that's something that happens a lot in OTP, like with matching function signatures like that, like something there was optimized like a lot as things moved on. And I learned a little bit more. I started thinking like, well, the only kind of scale that it makes sense to me to get these kinds of gains has got to be some sort of GPU. There's got to be some sort of GPU involved or, or you know, because I, I know that Elixir already takes care of like uh, taking advantage of threads or uh, not threads, um, uh, cores, all the different cores in your computer. So I, I know that's already there. So what could be beyond that? Well, GPUs have got, you know, hundreds and thousands of those those kinds of things. So that scale made sense to me. That's th those are my guesses. All right. I'm kind of doubting my final guess now, because when we talk <laughs> about those numbers, I'm like, oh, well, maybe it's not. I initially was thinking like integer math or something because Elixir is always, we always talk about how it's not the best at like doing those kind of things. You don't want to do like calculations in it if you're doing some kind of intensive application like that. And then I kind of moved on from that and I'm thinking more like TensorFlow, uh, machine learning. I'm just trying to read Jose's face and he's not really revealing anything. <laughs> I've practiced my poker face. <laughs> 
But then I don't know how that relates to those benchmarks. So I don't know. For me, I, I, I just remember talking with Jose sometime a long time ago, or just hearing you talk about some of the things you thought would be really cool for Elixir to be able to do. And you really liked the idea of the machine learning space. So I knew that that was something that was an area of interest to you. So I thought, well, I wonder if it's something in that area. And when we're seeing these benchmarks of that level of performance, it's like, well, I know Python, you know, Python is not a fast language. And one of the ways it's able to perform operations for like machine learning and image recognition and all these kinds of things is because it's doing some kind of C language interpolation and executing that on CUDA cores, on GPUs. And that's why Python is actually able to do that. And then we have like an intern in our company and he's like very much in the academics of math and computer science. And he's like, well, that N in the NX is a lot like the natural number set. And thinking, okay, well, that, that, that kind of went back to this whole idea of integers. And well, if integers can be fast, so like, it went all over the place. I don't have any, uh, <laughs> any solid guess. I, I have my theories still, but you know. All right. So, all right, let's get to this. So we've actually been working on a collection of libraries and NX. Things are still in flux, but NX right now stands for this collection of libraries or and for new this a new domain of Elixir. And it's also a library itself, which may be the core library that everybody will depend on. So uh, NX stands for numerical Elixir. That's what the, the project is about. The N looking like the natural number notation referring to mathematics, that was uh, the intent. And then Javier, which is the designer we have been working with, he had the idea. And then I told him, like, I basically told him, like, oh, it's meant to be fast and things like that. And so he came with the nice idea of having the, the boat with the axe to, to give that idea of performance. And as we are going to get to it, a lot of the things that we'll be working is multidimensional data. It's actually some, one of the things that I didn't see anybody referring to explicitly, the multidimensional aspect, but that initial concept art that I posted, the NX, it's, it's a 3D art, right? And then a lot of parallel lines mm. hinting to the GPU. So, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of the, the things were in there. But what is really interesting, uh, is that that was a concept art. That's not the final logo. And I actually wanted to tweet the final logo before I came to, to talk today, but I forgot. <laughs> so can you give me like one minute and I will tweet the final logo right now? Ooh. Oh, okay. All right. I, I don't know what animal that is. <laughs> right. So, 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 so that's the next, next tease. I'm going to tell you. Okay. So, because uh, we will probably review it uh, with time. So when I was looking for the name of the project, and we can talk about the name of the project. So, right, NX is the Marco Elixir, right? So when I was looking for the names, one of the things that I looked like animals is starting with N. Okay. And there is one animal that is called Numbat, and it's from Australia. And unfortunately, it's, um, you know, in the extinction, it's like an endangered species. They say like they're like less than a thousand in the world right now. So we're setting up a mechanism. Maybe we can do donations or something like that. But, you know, it's the perfect name, like Numbat, right? And then, and then of course, I went to see like, is this a friendly animal? Like, is this an animal that's going to try <laughs> to kill people or is he like friendly? And apparently he's friendly. And uh, Javier, he did the the design, which I really like, uh, because it you know he's curled up in a way that resembles the elixir drop, 
and I really like that. And then we have the NX with the natural N and the X. So that's the official logo. And I really like that. And as I said in the tweet, it, none of my projects, they had a mascot, right? And sometimes you get, you know, you get like uh, mascot envy from other projects. So like, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to explore this route and I'm going to try this. Yeah. And then, so, you know, all work from, from Javier and I am really happy with it. What was the name of that animal again? Uh, it's the Numbat. Numbat? Numbat. Yeah. Yep. So that's the logo. So NX stands for Numerical Elixir. So what does it mean in practice? Right now, we have been working on three fronts. Okay. Uh, so one is the NX library itself, which is the core. And what NX is, is a library for multidimensional arrays that we often call them tensors, right? So TensorFlow, the name tensor comes exactly from this multidimensional data structures. And those tensors, those multidimensional arrays, they are typed, right? So they are typed in the sense, not in the, you know, type system typing, but they are like unsigned integers or they are floats 32 or they are float 64. So one of the hints that I ended up dropping early is that I sent a pull request to Erlang to support float 16, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is exactly that, because I want to be able to include float 16, because when you're working uh, with numerical computation, sometimes the amount of data is just so large that you want, you know, we usually are not working with doubles, which is the default representation of floats in Elixir. We are working just with floats, floats 32. And sometimes people are even using uh, float 16, or sometimes they have a special representation of floats, like Google came up with the brain float, which is a float 16 that is exactly different, that is, is different from the float 16. It's like a truncated float 32. So we have those multidimensional arrays, which I'm going to refer to them as tensors, uh, most of, of our conversation, and they have a type. Right. And then you can do a bunch of things with them, right? You can, uh, compute the exponentiation of all the, the terms. You can sum across dimensions. You can do convolution. There are a bunch of different operations that we can do with those tensors, right? And why are they multidimensional? Because a lot of the times, even we are, we need to represent data in this way. So for example, if you, if you think of an image, a image as a day, you know, when we are thinking about how it's represented, the streaming memory, the array memory, it's actually three-dimensional, right? You have three dimensions. You have uh, the width, you have the height, and you have the channels, uh, the RGB channels, each of those. So you end up having three dimensions. So the channel dimension uh, has a size of three, right? Because it's usually RGB. But um, the height is going to depend, you know, on the image height, the width from the image width, and so on. So that's an X, right? It's the core. It's a... It's a bunch of conventions to work. And I think like the API is already considerably large today. We may already have more because there are a bunch of things that we can do. Now we are talking about multiple dimensions and the API today may even be already larger than the enum API, the enum module, which is one of the largest modules in Elixir. And if you're coming from Python, right? The obvious comparison that you do is that it compares to, to NumPy or NumPy. I hear people pronouncing both ways and never know which one is which. <laughs> and the NumPy API, it's like, it's gigantic, right? When you do the mm -hmm. auto completion on your terminal, it's like, it's pages. <laughs> so there's still a, a long way for us to go, but uh, we are starting working on that. Yeah. So that's the first project that we started working on. And this project is pure Elixir. Okay. 
So what we do is that we represent those tensors as large binaries, right? With all the data, and then we know how to traverse those, those binaries because we have the shape of the tensor, the type, and everything. And if it's written in pure Elixir, the first thing you're going to tell me is that, hey, you know, that's going to be slow, isn't it, right? Because every time you need to do any operation, like to compute the exponential, to do or to add elements, to multiply anything, you have to traverse the, the whole binary and you're going to create a whole new binary because Elixir is immutable. So that's going mm-hmm. to be slow. Just to give you an example, one of the functions that people use sometimes in numerical scientific computing, something called softmax. We use this function like softmax, for example, in machine learning. One of the things that you want to do, let's start with a simple example. You have a list with four or a tensor, a one-dimensional tensor, which is a list, with four elements, one, two, three, and four. And you want to see those values in that list, how they are represented in the list, like how what is the percentage of them in that list? One of the ways that we can do this is we compute the mean, right? And in this case, it's easy. Like the sum is 10. So four represents 40% of that total value and one represents uh, 10% of that total value. What you want to do a lot in machine learning with the result or depending on the layers is that you want to attenuate the low values, right? You want to throw them down and you want to accentuate the, the higher value. So in this case, we want four to actually be more than four in the whole, con- more than 40% in the whole context of things. And you want one to, you want to, to attenuate that and be less than 10%. So you can use the softmax function to do that. And the way that softmax works is that instead of dividing each number by, you know, the sum of everything, you actually, you compute the exponential of all those numbers and then you divide uh, by the sum of the exponential. So it's a very simple formula, a very simple mathematical formula. You get the exponential of each of each value and divide by the sum of the exponential of each value. And now instead of four being 40%, it's going to be, I don't know, but something around like 60, 65%. So you get this nice, uh, this nice property that we're talking about. So if this is implemented in a pure elixir, right? You can think, well, how expensive that's going to be. Imagine that we want to do this for a large tensor, okay? So imagine like this tensor has, I don't know, 10 million elements, right? And then let's say that those elements, they are float 64. So that's going to be like uh, 640 megabytes around, right? It's half half giga, right? Let's say. So that's large, right? So if we if implement the formula, like the mathematical formula, the first thing that we need to do is that we need to compute the exponential of, you know, of all the elements, and we're going to create a new large tensor, right? And then we need to uh, sum everything that is in this exponential, and the sum is easy, we're just going to get the one final value at the end because we are summing everything, so that's not going to be expensive, but then we need to get the sum and divide the, the exponential, the large tensor again by the result of the sum, which means a whole other large copy Right. And now, you know, you, we use like almost two gigabytes to perform this operation. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to be efficient at all. Right. So, well, where the performance is coming from. Right. So what is the next thing? So the other thing that we have been working on, and this is part of NX, uh, it's a module that is part of NX, is something that we call numerical definitions. OK, so what is a numerical definition? So the numerical definitions they are they look like Elixir code. You can define functions the same way in Elixir, you define a function with depth. In a numerical definition, you define a function with def n. You just put a n after the def, and that's the numerical definition. And inside the numerical definition, you are living in the numerical elixir world. 
In that world, what you have is a subset of Elixir. It's a subset where we, it's like, you know, in Elixir, all the code that you write lives inside the kernel and the kernel specifies all everything that you kind of can do inside Elixir. In the numerical definition, we'll replace the Elixir kernel by the numerical kernel. And what it does, it does things like it replaces the operator. So plus in Elixir can only work with numbers, right? So we replace plus by an implementation that works with numbers and with tensors. So we can actually uh, add two tensors together. So that's very basic note replacement of operators, something that Elixir could always do. So that's really straightforward. Uh, but the other thing about numerical definition is that in order for us to solve these issues that we have, where, you know, the softmax function that I just talked about would generate a bunch of copy, what we do in the numerical definition is that when you're executing your NX operations, we are not executing them immediately. What we are doing is that we are building a computation graph of all the tensor operations that you want to do. So now when you are going to do something like, hey, you know, I want to calculate the exponentiation and then I want to divide. What we do is that we fuse all those operations together so we can pass through the tensor only once. And then we reduce the amount of copying that we need to do considerably. You know, think of it exactly like Elixir streams work in comparison with Enum, but it's happening at the, the syntax level, you know, inside the DefN, we change things. So we build this graph and then we can look at this graph and, and fuse the operation so we, we do not do multiple traversals of the data. So that's one of the things that we have. So uh, I talked about the next. That's one of the things that we have been working on. And uh, I talked about numerical definitions. I did not get to the end of the numerical definitions. There is cooler stuff that we can do with it but I want to do a pause and check and hear from you. Everything good so far? It, I oh, mean, yeah. like, it's the first time I talk about any of this, so my explanation <laughs> may be way off mark. So, Well, I've got to say my first impression as, like, as you're kind of nearing this pause was like, that's a lot to do in two and a half months. Like you said, you've been working on this for two and a half months. It's like, that is a lot to do. Like you're, you know, a, a new def N, which you're like, you're replacing the Elixir kernel of what's being used and overriding the operators. and it's like, <laughs> so I'm just like a little bit in awe of how much that just that what you talked about right there encompasses. Yeah, it, it, this, this reminds me a lot of Pelame, right? That what Zach has been doing. Have you been working with him on uh, some of these ideas? Um, no, not yet. Um, we, I think we would definitely need to, uh, Pelame is going for a different route. Right. And there, there are different approaches and we can talk about that later on. But I should also definitely talk later on who has been working on this with me. So yes, well, let me talk about that. And then so we can have a break of all this technical stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, we've been working. So now that the date of recording today is like 29th January. So it has been three months that we have been working on this. And it always started. So who has been working with me? So we are two working on this part-time. It's Sean and, and I. And it always started, so Sean, he released a, a book from Prague Prague called uh, Genetic Algorithms for Elixir. It's a very recent book. And as you mentioned, Mark, like I've always had this interest in doing, you know, in exploring machine learning for Elixir. But like the last time I did any machine learning thing was like on my thesis in 11 years ago. So that was an area that I always had interest and I know some people, they're like, oh, you can just shell up to Python and that's fine. But, you know, if you want to have this thing 
as part of Elixir. I want it to really be part of Elixir. I want it to be, you know, part of the language and something that we own, right? And something that we can do. And what is said was people say like Elixir is not good for number crunching, but there are a lot of languages out there that people use for number crunching that are not good for number crunching, right? They are good for number crunching because they are calling C, they are calling Fortran that is going to do all the work. And in fairness, when I started with Elixir, we could say that Elixir was not good for number crunching because back then we only had NIFs and the NIFs, so NIFs is how we execute native code in their language virtual machine. And when I started Elixir, the NIFs, they could not do long time running work. They could not spend a lot of time executing an expensive computation. Okay. That was not possible because the NIFs, they run on the scheduler that run all of our Elixir code and Elixir code is preemptive, right? All the Erlang code, the VM is preemptive. So the scheduler could not take long executing some code. So you would have to break, you need, you would need to make our code yield. That would be definitely too complex to change all of those C and Fortran libraries to make the code yield. Anyway, so that, that was not possible, but about, um, I don't remember exactly the dates. If it was on the first version was on Erlang 17 or 18. But Steve Inoski, uh, some time ago, uh, around those Erlang versions, which are probably, what, uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, he started working on dirty NIFs. And with dirty NIFs, you can now say, hey, I want to do work that is going to use a lot of CPU or is going to be waiting. And now the VM knows how to put this work on a separate thread, and that thing can take as long as it wants. And dirty NIFs, they become like they end up being experimental in Erlang OTP 20. So for three, four years, or maybe even more, like this number crunching is, is no longer like necessarily a valid excuse for Elixir, right? We can have number crunching tools as good as anything else, right? As long as we do all the work. And uh, just to be clear, like I'm not diminishing the work that is happening on the other communities. It's a huge amount of work, but you know, we have the infrastructure. That's my point, right? It's not that it's easy and we can do it. It's just that it's a lot of work, but we can do it, right? So I always had this interest, but I was never sure on how to tackle this. And now in October, it was like the perfect storm of things. So Sean released the book and then I was like, well, if he's talking about genetic algorithms, he probably knows about AI, machine learning and all this stuff. And Brian Cardarella from Dockyard, he also knew that I had this interest. We talked about those things. And I, I mean, I talk about those things publicly. So it was really funny because Brian, he reached out to Sean immediately to say, hey, I think Jose is going to be interested in this. So he was, he reached out to Sean before me and then he pinged me and then he's like, hey, have you saw this? Isn't that like what you're interested in? And then I pinged Sean and then I told him like basically this conversation and he's like, yeah, I think, I think it, we can make it happen. And and Sean, I don't have background in machine learning at this point, right? What I did was 10 years, 11 years ago and it's, and by the time, like this whole deep neural networks thing was not, you know, happening or was just starting. So my knowledge is very outdated. And Sean is really, you know, he knows about all those things, right? So he's really good. And he's like, no, I think that can happen. I think that we can make this happen, right? So Sean has been working with us at Ashbit part-time exactly on this effort. And part of this perfect storm is that as soon as I started talking with Sean, I sent some tweets back in October. And there's another developer, uh, Jackal Cooper. He works on a machine learning framework for Python. And then he said, you know, I would also ask some questions. And then he reached out and say like, hey, 
I, I'm going to reach out my email. Then we started talking, and then he suggested for us to look into something called Google XLA, which I did not get to that, but we're going to get to that soon. And that's kind of how we started. And that these conversations started happening three months ago, and then we have been working part-time on this, uh, Sean and I. So, you know, what I've described today is the effort of like these three months of work. So, all right, that's the, that's the history part of things. Uh, any, any questions, compliments? <laughs> it's, I, it's interesting that like the book is released and then you, and then you ping them, you know, it's, it's not like the conversation happened earlier than that while he was writing the book. Uh, so it's interesting, like that's how books are written sometimes is just. Well, now he's going to have to come out with like version two that talks about doing it using NX, <laughs> yeah. right? He's going to rewrite right. the whole book. <laughs> yes, like, congratulations, you're working, so you have to do future work. Yeah, and I just want to give a really big uh, shout out to Prague Prague, right, for, you know, giving people the opportunity and investing on people for writing those books and experiment with this stuff. Like, if he did not write this book with Prague Prague, right, I don't know if he would not have written a book at all. Right. And maybe this would not have happened. So a really big thank you and shout out to them. So something you mentioned earlier was like this whole idea of the tensors and having this single pass through this assembling the set of transformations that you want to perform and, and do a single pass. So I'm guessing then that does not, it's not about changing to be mutable data, right? Is it still an immutable data structure? It is still immutable, yeah, except that now we try to fuse the operations. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, as I said, is, like, is what the stream module in Elixir does. We fuse the operations, so we do just one pass. It's something like the Haskell compiler does as well. So th this fusing of operations, it's a known and common like optimization compiler technique. Very cool. All right. So, so we talked about an X and then I was talking about the fan and we saw like the fan ha gives us a computation graph, right? That we can now look at these expressions and fuse things and try to make things more efficient. But that's not the only superpower that the fan has. Okay. With the fan, we can also do something that, uh, we call automatic differentiation or sometimes we call Auto diff or auto grad. Those are, if some, for somebody's coming from machine learning, they, they use those terms a lot. And what is this about? Okay. So this is really cool. This was the, the, I, this was one of the trickiest part of the project for now, uh, so far. And, uh, what automatic differentiation is about. So let, let me explain the problem that we want. We use automatic differentiation to solve. Okay. So imagine that we want to train a probabilistic model. Okay. So far as, which is a, a neural network is, right? So when you're training a neural network or a probabilistic model, usually what you do is that you have, uh, when you're training, you have the inputs and you have the outputs, the desired outputs, right? So if I want to train a neural network to tell me if something is a cat or a dog, I have a bunch of images that already have been classified to say this is a cat or this is a dog. So what we do is that we give the input to the neural network, right? And then it goes through this model that is represented uh, by a mathematical formula, and this formula will be expressed with an X using the NX operations, right? And then you get the output, and then you are going to compare the, the output that you wanted, the output that you expected with the output that you got, right? And depending on how different those are, you want to tweak the parameters of the model so the next time you give a similar input, those, are the, those outputs, they are close to each other, okay? Mm -hmm. So what we do is that usually when you're doing this process, we define a loss function. So for example, a very simple loss function could say, hey, I'm going to get the output that I expected 
So if it was a numerical value, right? You can say, I'm going to get the output that I expected minus the output that I got, right? And that's going to be the loss function. And what you want to do is that you want to minimize this loss function, right? You want it to ideally be zero as you're giving it inputs and then you compare the difference between outputs, you want this loss function to be zero, right? So the things that we have to do when training neural networks or probabilistic models is that we want to minimize the loss function, right? So if you think that we are plotting the loss function in a graph, we want to get to the minimal part of that plot, right? To the minimum part of that graph, right? So that's the problem we want to solve. How do we solve this problem? To understand how we're going to solve it, let's think about how we're going to, how we would be in a situation in real life to try to do an equivalence, a metaphor for us to understand it. Imagine you are at the top of the mountain and you want to get to the bottom as fast as possible. But you want to get to the bottom alive, right? You don't want to throw yourself out of the thing, right? So you want to get to the bottom alive. So what do we do, right? So what you do is that you are at the top, you look around you, and what you do, you find the steepest slope, right? The steepest slope down, right? So you find the steepest slope down, and then you give a step in that direction. And then you are now in a new position. You do the same thing. You look around, you see where is the... Uh, steepest slope and then you give a next step and then you give the next step and then you give the next step yeah pathfinding yeah eventually you're going to be at the bottom and how do you know that you are at the bottom you are at the bottom when all the when you look around and everything is up right that means you are on the absolute bottom right or on the bottom that, that those paths led you to you can be on a on a local minimum instead of a global minimum but that's a separate discussion we can yep. uh, ignore that <laughs> for now so, okay, so that's how we do in practice. How do we do this for our mathematical function, right? How we, do we find the, the minimum? We use the derivative, right? We compute the derivative. If you have a loss function, we, have, we are at a point. We compute the derivative of that point, and that derivative is going to tell us what is the direction that we should go. And then we give a step in that direction, and then we do that over and over again. And there are a couple ways for us to compute the derivative. One of the ways that we could do is that we could, you know, uh, get our calculus book and remember all the chain rules, the product rules, exponentiation rule, everything. Remember, you know, what is the explanation of sine, cosine, get all those things, right? And then do by hand, come up with the formula, plug that in your software, right? Hope that you are correct. And then you know how to train your model, right? We could also use numerical, numerical calculus to help find that. So, for example, one of the ways that we could do is that we could brute force, right? So, you know, one of the ways that we could do is that we could, if we are at a point, we could simulate going to a bunch of different points, right? Going up, going down, going to the left, going to the right, and see which one is lower and go that. But that's going to be expensive and error-prone uh, because you don't know exactly if you're trying things out, you know, it's not guaranteed that you're moving in the correct direction. So, you know, so with NX, in particular, with the numerical definitions, because we are building those expressions, all you need to do is to say, hey, I want you to compute, I want you to differentiate this expression for me. We call it grad. I want you to compute the gradient, the gradient descent of this expression for us. You know, it's just a single call that you do. And then we are going to traverse the expression for you and we are going to compute it for you. So now when you're building a neural network, for example, and you express your loss function, you express your prediction, and now you want to train it, we have the thing that is going to compute and do all the, is going to help you minimize the loss function so you can train your neural network as efficiently as possible. So that's another really cool feature uh, that DefN gives us. 
And that's exactly the automatic differentiation autograd. Does any of this end up using GPUs? All right. That's a good question. And we are getting there, <laughs> right? So, so those are the two things that, that we'll be working on. I'm done with that pen. And now we are going to the third thing that we are working on, which is a project called EXLA. And EXLA, they are bindings for Google's XLA, which an XLA stands for Accelerated Linear Algebra. It's a library from, from Google that's part of TensorFlow. So TensorFlow is really a large collection of libraries, right? So for example, inside TensorFlow, you have TensorFlow and TensorFlow Lite, which are two different things, but they are all in the same repository. And part of the TensorFlow repository is this thing called XLA. And we wrote bindings for this thing. What XLA does is that you can give it a computation graph and it's going to compile efficiently to run on the CPU or on the GPU. So now you see where this is going, right? Mm -hmm. So what you can do is that in that fan, not only we can do all those things that we're talking about, but you can change the compiler. And one of the compilers that we have is the XLA compiler that is going to compile our numerical definitions to run on the GPU. So what this means at the end of everything is that now we have a subset of Elixir that is running on the GPU, right? And that's really cool. And it's like... Nice. <laughs> and it's not like a small subset of the language. It is small because it needs to run on the GPU, but it's not like, oh, it's like a different language. No, you can still use the pipe operator. You can still use macros. You can still use aliases. You, you have conditionals and those conditionals, they are running on, on the GPU as well. So there is a, a, an interest. I mean, you don't have pattern matching. You, I mean, you do have pattern matching, but a, like you can only pattern match tuples to get a couple things out. But yeah, we have a subset of Elixir running on the GPU. And that's why, so when we're talking about the benchmarks, right? That's where those, all those numbers, they came from. So uh, the benchmarks that I published was actually the softmax function. So we, I implemented softmax. And then if you run it in Elixir, it was doing like three iterations per second, right? I, I don't remember the size. It, it's a large tensor. I don't remember if it has 10,000 or a million, I think a million elements. So it does three iterations per second. When we use XLA to compile to the CPU, it makes it 50 times faster, right? So even if you don't have the GPU, which I don't have, by the way, <laughs> but even <laughs> if you don't have the GPU, you know, that code is going to get 50 times faster, the softmax example, just by running with XLA. And then if you run it with using, if you tell it to use floats 32 instead of doubles, instead of floats 64, then it's like uh, 100 times faster or 120, right? And then when you put that to run the GPU, it gets much faster, right? But there is one thing, there is one detail. So when you get to run the GPU, it gets kind of like 100 times faster, Right. So, but you're saying, well, I remember the benchmarks. They were like, you know, something absurd, like 3000 times faster or, yeah. or 50,000 times faster. So why is that? So the thing is that in the GPU, what is expensive a lot of the times is actually moving the data in and moving the data out. So we have a flag where you say, when you're done with the computation, keep the data on the GPU and don't necessarily bring it out by the time the computation is done. Mm -hmm. So we have this keep on device true. So when we mm -hmm. keep the data on the device, which is what you want to do a lot of the times, right? So for example, if you're training a neural network, you are training it in batches. After you're done with one batch, you don't want to bring the data out just to send it back in. You just say, hey, keep the data, right? I'm going to send you more stuff to do. And when you keep the data on the GPU, 
and then you get like to those 4,000 times faster, 5,000 times faster, uh, those numbers. And now that I'm saying it, I, I'm saying this, I'm, re- I'm remembering of other things. So there is one person, Isaac, where I, when I shared the second benchmark, he guessed the numbers to perfection. He said, <laughs> I guess this number is this, and I guess this number is running on the GPU, and I guess this number is running on the GPU, but keeping the data on the GPU. So he nailed it. So yeah. we invited him to, <laughs> so, so we actually invited him to the project, uh, like a month ago to take a look at things. So it's like, um, you actually know what's going on. You can help us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, or basically like, it's a way to kind of like silence him, like, don't say anything anymore. <laughs> to take him out Stop of giving. circulation. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, so those are the three, the three main components that we are working on right now. Um, NX, DevN, and EXLA. As I was explaining things, there are a bunch of things that came to my mind that I wanted to talk about. And I'm sure they will come back. But questions, any, any. So one question, I've never actually worked with a GPU for doing computation. I don't have personal experience doing that. How in Elixir, one, how do I enumerate that there are devices available and how do I tell it to go to this device or something like that? Part of the XLA bindings is exactly that. The Google XLA project knows how to detect all this stuff and we just delegate to it, right? And then NX defines a general API for us to work with devices and say, I want to transfer from this device to this device. So NX defines the behavior and then those different backends, they can come and, and plug things in, right? So Google XLA is, it's the project that we have bindings right now. And it's generally called a tensor compiler, okay? But there are multiple tensor compilers out there. So one's like Apache TVM, where TVM stands for Tensor Virtual Machine. And there are a bunch of other things that people are experimenting. So LLVM, now if they're ML, IR pass, they are exploring something in that direction as well. So there is a bunch of work happening in this area. We designed and that's exactly so those backends, they are pluggable because if somebody wants to bring a different backend, it should be possible. And this is something that's very nice because I don't think a general effort like this, somebody can correct me later. Uh, but as far as I know, there is not such a fort happening like this in Python. So it's happening at a higher layer. So the neural networks, they usually have a bunch of different backends. So you can choose to use Google XLA or to use, you know, these or to use that, but not at the tensor level. So that's something that we have been exploring and we have really excited about it. I want to talk about two things before I forget. So uh, let me say what those are, because then you remind me if I forget. I want to talk about the work from Python that we are using as inspiration. I think that's very important. And... I want to talk about like, don't go in expecting too much. So I'll start with that, <laughs> right? So one of the things is that I, I say this a lot, like all the communities, they internalize some pains, right? And something that I've tried to be very careful about, right? We definitely, as a community in Elixir, we definitely internalize some pains. And that's something we need to be aware of. And it's very funny because now going to this area of numerical computations and machine learning, I am discovering a whole new amount of pains that I think people there probably internalize, but to me, it's like, oh my God, right? So for example, when you get EXLA, so when we make this public in two weeks or so, and you're going to give it a try, the first thing that it's going to do is that it's going to clone TensorFlow and it's going to compile TensorFlow. Or not the whole TensorFlow, but the, the XLA subset, okay? So that means you need to install Bazel. You need to have NumPy in your machine for some reason. It's something that we've tried to address. 
And if you are lucky, it's going to take one hour. <laughs> if you're not lucky, it's going to take much more than one hour, right? <laughs> and then it's going to produce a shared object file that if you're lucky, is going to be 200 megabytes, right? And this blows my mind, right? Because like <laughs> the thing that we are using to compile the tensors, it's like what, eight, nine times than the virtual machine itself, right? It's, it, you know, but anyway, so there are those things. We are, we are working on addressing some of those things. So, right, so we are going to have all those things. So your the first thing, if you're really excited about the project, like, I want to play with this, right? The first thing that you have to do is wait. You have to wait for TensorFlow <laughs> to compile. And there is no way around that. And right now, NX and XLA, they are in the same project because they have been involved together. But we are going to break it apart. So in the future, we'll be able to start an X without bringing XLA. And I hope that in the future, people get excited about this and do bindings for different tensor compilers. But right now, that's the deal. You need to use TensorFlow, right? But we are working on exciting things as well um, to help address that. Because what are we going to do? Are we going to ship with a... Are we going to compile TensorFlow in production? Or are we going to ship with a 200 megabytes SO <laughs> file, right? So... And again, and then if you want to make it run on the GPU, and that's already a problem because you need to have the, the proper CUDA bindings and, and drivers and so on. And then if you are using Linux, then that's a whole other set of problems, which is to make Linux play well with your GPUs, with uh, the NVIDIA GPUs in particular, right? So that will be pain, rest assured, right? So we are, we are doing some things to address some of those pains, right? So one of the things I didn't talk about is that the way that the XLA works, the XLA compiler works, is very interesting. What it does, it's a just-in-time compiler, completely separate from the VM just-in-time compiler that we are getting on our Lingo TP. But what it does is that when you call a numerical function or numerical definitions with a tensor, so remember, tensors, they have shape, which is like how many dimensions they have and the size of those dimensions. They have a type. Is this a unsigned integer, assigned integer? Is it a float 32, a float 64? So when we call the numerical definition, it gets the shape of the tensor and the type of the tensor and not those values. And based on the shape of the tensor, it compiles an executable with those shapes and types in mind. Okay? So the executable is specific to the types of the tensors that you are passing as argument. Right? And what this means is that then what XLA can do is that it can compile code that is very specific to those shapes. And you can do optimizations that are specific to those shapes. So for, and are specific to how much memory you have in the GPU, for example. So, you know, depending on how much GPU memory that you have, they can use more greedy algorithms that use more memory, but are faster, right? So they can do all those kind of decisions. And this is not something specific to XLA. I was talking about tensor compilers in general. They all seem to employ different techniques. But this is very cool. But it's important to say we are doing just-in-time compilation. So the first time you call a numerical definition with some tensors, for that set of tensor shapes and types, we are going to compile something on the apply and invoke it. And then the next time you call it with the same types and shapes, that executable is going to be cached. So we just execute it again. So uh, that's one of the things that we do. So just-in-time compilation. But we are also working on ahead-of-time compilation. So if you build a neural network, for example, or if you have your numerical definitions, you can say, hey, I'm going to call this thing with tensors of these shapes and so on, right? With tensors of these shapes and, and of those types. And then we're going to compile that ahead of time. So you don't need all these, these really large SO or DLL file in production. So we emit something really, really small with just what you need. And this is going to be particularly important 
for nerves, for example, right? So, you know, you're running Raspberry Pi and nerves has already nailed all this like cross compilation thing kind of stuff. So it would be really good to say, hey, you know, now I can compile like my neural network or my numerical computing, my image manipulation problem or whatever. We can all compile that, get this small thing and ship it to nerves, right? And run that on the device, on the CPU or on the GPU and, and so on. Yeah, that was a question I had too. Was was about uh, since we're talking about compilers here, I know that 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 you know something like the Apple M1 chip that's kind of changing developers' workflows, going more towards ARM. I know that Nerves has already been on ARM for a while, uh, and Nerves is an important part of the Elixir community. It, so it sounds like shipping an XLA compiler with an X, uh, compiling all that kind of stuff. That sounds like that's not going to be a problem with different architectures, ARM versus x86. So actually already handles that. That's one of the nice things are just depending on them for now, nice. right? And then even if it's an issue, we'll likely have other tensor compilers that works on those platforms as well. So we can just leverage them too. So that's the kind of the general hope. Like there's really a lot of work happening in this era of tensor compilers. And the idea is that we can bring whatever we want. And it will be really interesting to see that happening in the future. It will be really cool to see, you know, people running benchmarks with different tensor compilers and choosing whatever makes more sense for them. Uh, I think that will be really cool. Another question is, I know that when I when I write Elixir, some some of the facts that I have in my head as, as I'm writing a function is like, is this going to be needed in runtime or compile time? I don't know where N, def n fits in that that realm. Is is it fair to think that anything that's happening in def n should be happening at compile time? No, so that's so that's the really cool thing. That that was actually my initial implementation. What I would do with the fan is that I would look at the Elixir code at compile time and build this computation graph at compilation time, but that proved to be too restrictive. So what we do, some people call it multi-stage programming. I'm not exactly sure if that's true. But what we do is that we do things in, in two steps, right? So what, first we work with the Elixir EST because one of the things that we do is that we want to get a if, right? We want to get a conditional, for example, and send that to the GPU, which mm -hmm. means that first of all, we cannot compile an if to our regular Elixir with. So we, we change the Elixir EST and that becomes runtime code that when it executes, it builds the numerical definition AST or the numerical definition computation graph, which we then we send to the GPU. That's why some people say it's like multi-stage because, but it's actually happening at runtime, which is, which I think it's good news. It gives like some very interesting flexibilities uh, and interesting aspects and ways to manipulate and integrate code without being on that combination of runtime and compile time. Yeah. I, I think this is, uh, I'm going to segue this into the other thing that, uh, I said I would talk about. I cannot forget, which is the work from Python. So Python developers or people with experience from Python, you can think of our collection of things that we have been working on as the junction of two Python libraries. One I've already said, which is NumPy. And the other is JAX, which is a library from Google that does something very similar to numerical definitions, right? That I described. It's a Python library that as you call like the tensor operations, it records everything that is happening. Okay. And it sends that to XLA, right? So what are the differences? And the JAX served a lot as inspiration, right? To, you know, to, to help us build the model. So really important. Both libraries, we have been using them as kind of our, our guiding stars, but we're not like 
porting them, copying, right? We say, hey, this is the direction I want to go, but we always try to say, doesn't does it make sense for Elixir? Or maybe this is a bad idea and we want to kind of change things and do things differently. So one of the things that, for example, one important feature that we have in NX, in our tensor implementations, that you can name the dimensions of the tensors, you can name the axis, and that's something that you don't have on NumPy, for example, but at the very beginning, it kind of showed to be something that would be really important. So we, we've baked that in from the, from the very beginning. And there are some movements in Python about having a named tensors and so on. But anyway, those are kind of two like North Stars. And what is really interesting is that when I was uh, watching talks from Jax, which is this thing that records things and sent to XLA as well. So one of the difference between our numerical definitions and Jax is that our version is it's compiler agnostic, right? Jax will always send it to the XLA while we did the fork from the beginning to, to make the compiler uh, replaceable, right? So that's one of the things. But the interesting thing about Jax is that in order for it to record, Python has a different metaprogramming model than, than Elixir, right? So in order for it to record this computation graph, what Jax does is that it uses a pattern that the Python community calls tape. And people coming from Ruby the name of this pattern is pretty much method missing, right? So imagine that you have this object and as you're calling things, you are recording all these calls in building a graph. That's how JAX works, right? But there is a problem in this approach in JAX. There are a couple limitations. So for example, in JAX, when you try to set an element in the in the tensor, right, using the same syntax that we would use in Ruby, for example, or I can say the tensor and then brackets, you give a position and set something there. That's a side effect, right? And you can't record side effects in Python. Maybe you could in Ruby. No, I don't think you can either. But you can't record the side effect in Python. So the JAX library, they say, hey, you should write JAX code as if it was a functional programming language. Right. And that was the first time that like there was the light bulb in my head. It's like functional programming language, right? I know about those things. <laughs> right. So that was the first thing. And you should mostly treat, you know, your JAX expression or as you're working with tensors, you should think of them as immutable, as functional. And the other thing in JAX as well, which would have the same limitation in Ruby, is that it is trying to record everything that you do with it. But also when you pass this object that you're using to record everything, when you pass it to a conditional, to a if, if it's going to make a decision, if it should execute the, the true branch or the false branch, and this decision, you can't record that as well, right? Because that's part of how if works and you can't change that in Python, right? So, or in Ruby. So Jax also says like, be careful with if, be careful with loops, right? Because those things, they're not running the GPU, right? But the interesting thing about Elixir is that by in Defn, because if in Elixir is not a keyword, right? It's just a macro. We can actually replace the if, and we can actually make our if run on the GPU. Oh, so man. it's more natural looking. So this was uh, really nice, like, like those perspective. But again, like going back, I, I'm, not, I'm getting excited about this. And I think, I hope people are going to get excited about this. But going back to the point, like I, those are our North, Star, North Stars and they are like, way high right like compared to us we are at the very beginning just this is just the seed to start working on this foundation what those libraries can do today is just amazing and impressive and there is a lot of work for us to start getting anywhere near close to them but yeah but i'm really excited about the foundation so 
you know, those are enough stars and we, we are using them as our direction, but it's not a blind following. We are like thinking about things and, you know, wh where we can improve, where we can change things. We look at feedback that the Python community has within itself and try to absorb that. Uh, we also look at Julia, right? Because Julia has also thought a, a lot about those things. And we're like, hey, you know, how they have approached this problem and how we can think about all this stuff. But uh, it has been really exciting. What you're describing there sounds to me like, okay, you know, you, you're describing these North Stars, like this kind of guiding lights. And it sounds like, yeah, you're also learning from their mistakes or not necessarily mistakes, but, you know, the shortcomings that they have. Like, hey, be careful about this. Be careful about that. And you're like, hey, we can do better at that. And we can position Elixir to be in a really good spot for building on this and actually accomplishing this and, and being potentially in the future, maybe even a better platform for this. Is that, am I hearing you right? Well, yeah, uh, it's it's a hope, right? Uh, I'm sure that we are trying to avoid some mistakes, and I'm sure that in that process, we're also going to make new mistakes, and we are going to make mistakes that they did, and they <laughs> learned about, and it was not apparent to us. But I am skeptical of saying it's a better platform. I'll be happy if we are into consideration, right? I, I really would think that would be like a majestic achievement, right? If we, if, you know... If we join the conversation, like three months ago, that was not even a starting point, right? It's like, can you do uh, machine learning with Elixir? It's a, it was a no. And right now, it's probably still a no, unless you're like early adopter. And don't expect when this comes out, like you can build your neural network and you can <laughs> put it in production and do a bunch of interesting things. Like there are a bunch of things in the ecosystem that we are missing as well, not even related to the things I talked about today. Don't expect any of that, but we are we are saying this is like how can we change the no to a maybe? That's the direction we are going on right now, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we get to the maybe, which I think will already be a big achievement, then we can talk about how do we get to the yes, and then maybe when we get to the yes, we, we can talk about how do we go to yes definitely, right? So I think babe steps. Uh, there is a, a lot of work. <laughs> Couple of questions from from me is like. I'm curious if that can be applied to anything else. I'm thinking, I'm thinking nimble parsec for some reason. Because this sounds like this could, you know, leverage uh, some of these kinds of superpowers. You know, is there is there something in like a a web server application kind of environment where you know NX could be could be helpful? No, another question, you know, is what are you going to talk about at at Lambda Days? So to answer the first question, so definitely, you know, entering in the numer numerical computing part. So I, the bad news in all of this is that I don't think Elixir code today is going to benefit from this. Uh, I don't think Nimble Parsec is going to benefit from this. You know, getting regular text to work on those algorithms is not necessarily straightforward. So what you do is that you need to get each unique word in the text, give it a position in your tensor, right? So end up with really large tensors right? As the, the the number of words in the text grows. So, I mean, we'll definitely get there because there is machine learning stuff that you can do with text, but it's not it's going to change. It's mm -hmm. So people today that, so people using Elixir today that would benefit from this, I can think of things like maybe you need to do some image manipulation and before you were shelling out to something, but maybe now you can write those, some of those algorithms with an X, compile it to the CPU, and have those running without having to to shell out to something, to shell out to image magic. So that's one potential way. So one of the things that I want to eventually implement, and 
relatively straightforward, it's like image resizer. Now we can have a, a image resizer implemented in Elixir, right, which is not going to be fast, but uh, you can just put in a definite expression and compile it to the CPU and it's going to be fast on the CPU. So uh, that's one of the things that you'll be able to do. Or, you know, if you're using Python for something straightforward and then now for machine learning, for example, and then now you can say, I don't need to orchestrate those Python workers. I can just do this directly from Elixir. Or maybe instead of orchestrating Python workers, I'm going to have a separate Elixir node internal that I'm going to communicate using the Erlang distribution and ask that to use the GPU, right? Because, the G so for example, if you're thinking about like cloud deployments, the GPU machines, they are more expensive. So mm -hmm. you don't want necessarily to have your web stuff with the GPU stuff. Uh, so <laughs> you, you want to send a message to the separate machine. But good news is that with the Erlang distribution, that's relatively easy. But sometimes you may actually want to use, have that on, on a single machine. So for example, imagine that you want to do something with the webcam, right? The most efficient way is if the thing that is receiving the video feed is doing that and change the things on the fly. And now we'll be able to do that. So so one other question in terms of other applications for it. One thing I want to understand is, can we use DefN, you're talking about compiling to the CPU. Can we use that without having XLA, the Google XLA installed? Like with that that big one hour hit kind of thing? Is that the kind of thing we can just Say, well, I, I, I don't want to use all of that. I just want to speed up some basic math things and do it on CPU only. DefN today has two compilers. One is the pure Elixir compiler that we talk about. And it has some optimization, but it's going to be slow, okay? Uh, it's everything done in pure Elixir. And it has the XLA compiler. But you can implement a, let's say, a DefN Lite compiler where it basically maps all the operations that we do to something that is implemented in C maybe using CMD instructions. So there are libraries for that. And that code doesn't have to be to be all this complexity. It's just like, hey, so for example, we have a matrix multiplication operation and somebody can just implement that in C straightforward, like a translation from the Alexer code and that's in C. And then we can have a very lightweight of doing those operations extremely fast. I mean, not extremely fast, but I mean, extremely fast compared to Elixir. I, I assume that a naive implementation like that would probably still be able to, to go like 20 or 30 times faster. And that, I think that would be good enough. And that would be just one thing that you compile once and it, you know, it, it, it adds a regular NIF. So there is definitely potential for somebody to implement and work on that. I would love if somebody explores this, yeah. We walked into this this conversation knowing that you wanted to do more in machine learning, right? And TensorFlow, you know, is a, is a great tool to help us with that. Um, and you walked into that because you knew that Elixir just wasn't good at that uh, now, right? I'm curious. Here, here's the question is, I'm curious, what other areas do you think that Elixir, you know, could have the same kind of boost, you know, the same kind of, well, what's it lacking now that you think has a lot of great potential in? Honestly, I I don't know. I had my laundry list of things that I would like to play and explore with, and it has shrunk uh, over the years. So one example is GenStage. So when GenStage was released, it was a very similar situation where we were having all the reactive streams of fort happening in other communities. And I was like, hey, Elixir Erlang is going to be good for this. There is like no question about it. It's going to be good. We just need to find the proper abstractions and work on it. And we did that, and that has been a continuous effort that eventually landed on Broadway. And one of the things that me at Dashbit and our team at Dashbit want to do for this year 
is that we want to release broad A10. I have been working on um, with a designer on the logos and this kind of stuff and say like, hey, this is, you know, this is in a good place. I, I don't think there is anything in particular. And that's not to mean that there isn't anything. It's just that there is anything from my, that I know of, which is a very narrow view of all the possible things. <laughs> You're a focused do. guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I, I think was interesting is recently I talked with Wojtek Mock and we saw the work that he did on the mix.install, which is going to be coming in Elixir 1.12. Elixir 1.12 is exciting. It's like building up to be another big, huge release like 1.11 was. Uh, but one of the things I thought was cool is just like this idea of pushing Elixir into different directions and different kind of markets or areas where it can excel. Yeah. So what NX is doing and what I see you doing here is like, okay, you're saying this whole machine learning space, it's a big space. It's, it's showing it's an important area. We want to be able to play there. And then Wojtek was saying... Hey, I think we can make Elixir a little easier and more convenient to use when we're scripting. So he's pushing in that direction. So I don't know. Do you have any comments you'd like to make about this kind of direction? No, this is this is an excellent question because well, Vitek he works at Dashbit too, right? He's he's my colleague, and we have been talking about a mix install for a while. There are a couple of things. So one is like you know I've seen people saying like. Elixir was designed to be a scripting language. We even have like a format that stands for Elixir script, right? But people are saying, I don't use Elixir for scripts because I can't, there are some limitations, like I can't trap exits, like not trivially trap exits because we can for a while. So on Elixir.12, we're going to have an API for that. And actually, I don't think Elixir 1.12 is going to be a big release in the sense of it's big, it's just that it's like getting a nice bouquet of flowers, right? You think it's big, but it's like, it's just a bunch of nice flowers, you know? It smells nice. So we are doing like small improvements. And I think that's how Elixir 1.11 was. We, we didn't have any big major change, but a bunch of nice things that make our life easier. And Mix install is one of the changes that we are doing to say, hey, you know, if Elixir is good for scripting, you know, let's let's put our money on it. Let's improve it. But there is one reason why we resurfaced the discussion about mix install internally is exactly, remember that was saying that we all internalize some pains and some limitations and we just end up not talking about it. And I think this was one of them. We kind of all accepted that you can't do that, right? And what is going to happen, and that's why I think this is an excellent question, what is going to happen is that if the numerical elixir work, a lot of people that have never used elixir, they are going to start using elixir and they are going to start using Elixir for something that Elixir was never used before. So they are going to find pains, right? They are going to find things that, uh, or they are pains that we have absorbed, or they are pains that we never noticed because we're never using Elixir for this particular purpose, right? So it's kind of like, you know, we are accepting now, we will have to accept like a, a little brother or a little sister inside the house, right? And we'll have to be welcoming. So this is something that I think uh, we'll have to to be aware in the future. And mix install. And I was originally worried. I'm I'm really glad that the proposal was well accepted. But you know, like most proposals in the Alex remaining list today, it ends like, well, you can do that in one line. You probably don't need it, right? Or it can be a separate package. And I think that's great. I think that's where we want to be. But we'll have to know, and I'm not saying like, let's change that and accept everything and make and change the language drastically, right? 
Baseball MC says that we'll have to be good listeners now, right? Because a lot of the times today, we could say, well, this is the first time somebody asked this in 10 years. So we probably, it's probably fine. We probably don't need it, right? That's usually our response because we have kind of all been using Elixir for the same things. And since we, we don't need it, it's likely that the odds of you really, you, a lot of people needing it's low. But now, now that assumption is broken, right? It may be broken. Right. It's like, Hey, no, I never needed this for Elixir. It's like, sure. You never need this for Elixir because, uh, because, you know, you were never using Elixir this way. Right. So I think that's going to, uh, to be something that is going to be, I think the dynamics are going to be very interesting. And again, I'm not saying we're going to just change everything and accept everything. Right. We're continuing going to do things the same way. And just to make a point, this is something that we already did in the past. Right. So, for example, there are things in Elixir today that they exist because of nerves. So, like the mixed target environment variable. If you're being a web server, you don't care about mixed target. You're not compiling it to, you know, to different compilers to, you know, to uh, to run a Raspberry Pi or Big O Backbone and this kind of stuff. You don't care. But mixed target was added because there was a very clear need from the nerves community, right? For that, for having a more integrated tool chain. So those are things that happen and has happened. And now, and now there is somebody new to the party that, to the family that we'll have to listen to. And I think those dynamics are going to be interesting. So mix install was pretty much, you know, like as Python developers, as Ruby developers, they are customized with having everything on their path, right? And being easy to play things. And I'm pretty sure that when they get here, they'll be like, I can't have that. And I'm not happy with this. They're not going to be happy with that. So we say, okay, we need a way to, to make easier to run a, something with a dependency locally. We want to make that easier, right? But at the same time, we have always been clear that global packages, they are asking for trouble, right? And then I think mix install was just a really nice compromise of like, how can we make things reproducible or how can we install things easily? without adding those global dependencies that we don't like, right? So I think it's a good example of how those things are going to play off. And it was pretty much thinking about, in a lot of ways, it's addressing needs within the community, but it's also thinking about, you know, this may be a lot more requested soon enough, right? Because people are going to be writing more scripts and playing with more with things. So how can we make this easier? If somebody wants to get involved in helping, not necessarily just with NX, but if somebody wanted to get involved and contribute with Elixir, how's a good way to get started? For Elixir itself, the the best way is to look at the issues tracker. We always keep the issues tracker very nice and organized. And Elixir in general, it's, uh, as I've talked multiple times, it's like the language is, we consider it done. We are only doing small improvements and this kind of stuff. There's no arch that we're working towards to uh, in terms of the language itself. Uh, so if you want to play with things, jump into the issues tracker and feel free to ask questions. Feel free to find places where you can start. Uh, one of the nice things about... Uh, so usually the Elixir issues tracker is like below 10 issues. So there is not a lot of work. But one of the nice things about me like focusing a lot of an X is that I'm giving more time for the issues to sit there. I'll, uh, if nobody gets to them, I'll get to them for sure. But... There is more space for contribution. And then when the next comes out, it's really going to be an uh, early adopter thing. But anybody who wants to play with it and explore it, jump in. It's kind of uh, refreshing in a way, you know, starting a project that can be this big from the beginning. And, you know, it kind of reminds me from Elixir at the beginning where everybody was contributing 
and changing things around, right? And and improving and participating in the discussions because there was a lot to be decided. And that was an exciting part, but with time, you know, we've settled the things, right? Which is what we need. We 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 answer the questions that we need to answer to have the foundation of the language. And I'm excited for this thing kind of happening all over again. You know, it happened later on with Phoenix and web stuff, right? It happened within the nurse community and I was like, hey, it's happening again. And I think it's it's very, very exciting. Well, this is very exciting. I am really excited about this. Uh, so you talked about like the release of NX, the library and some of this code. Is that going to be timed with this presentation at Lambda Days? And what can we look forward to seeing at Lambda Days? Right. So at Lambda Days, I'm going to explain those concepts that we talked today, but they're all going to be exemplified with code. And I'm not 100% sure yet, but I think I'll be live coding something. <laughs> so uh, I'm going this direction. So so I'll be live coding something using an X, uh, XLA and FN. And I don't know if I'll live code and then explain how it works or if I'll mix. I still need to sit down and practice things. But yeah, definitely come. You know, if you want to, if you want to put code to everything that we talked about, uh, come to my, to my presentation. And yes, it's going to be open sourced on the same day as my presentation, right after, uh, or something like that. Uh, exactly right after, but it's going to be on the same day. Yeah. And then in preparation for to coming here today and for the talk, like I've been working on the docs, uh, this week a lot. And I've been putting the logos on the readme to kind of be on the ready state. You could pull a Boyd Malterer and open and open up the uh, the repo on stage, you know, on, during <laughs> during your presentation. Yeah, I, I thought about that, but because it's remote, right? It's not like it doesn't <laughs> doesn't have the same. It would be like, hey, let's look at this guy do something in his computer. <laughs> so yeah, if it was a live presentation, I could do that. But I think now I'll. I'll I'll keep it easy. <laughs> so for you, dear listener, that will be February the 17th is when he's giving his keynote speech about this at Lambda Days. So that's something very exciting, very exciting to look forward to the code drop and seeing this uh, examples put to code. Oh, and uh, we have a promo code, Thinking Elixir 15. Right. Yes. So if you are interested in coming to the conference and you haven't yet reserved a ticket, Use Thinking Elixir 15 for a 15% discount uh, during signup. That's all lowercase, one word, Thinking Elixir 15. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, Jose, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and, and sharing this information and revealing this here with us. I, I'm super excited. I'm, I'm glad you were able to temper expectations to help us realize that, yes, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think it's, there's a lot to look forward to. And for people who are interested in playing in this space and want to be able to push Elixir and help in that direction, I think there's going to be some great opportunities for people to step up and do experimentations and commit back and, and help in this growth. So I'm excited to see that. So Jose, if people want to follow you and kind of you know follow the progress of NX and what's going on, where should they go to do that and what's the best way? Right. So uh, good questions. My Twitter, uh, Sean's Twitter, and the Elixir Lang Twitter, most likely. We are probably not creating an Elixir NX Twitter or something like that. Most likely not. Try to keep everything united under one community. But I think those will be the places. Awesome. And there is one thing. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be mean, but I'll say it. Uh, <laughs> so I, I talked about like those three fronts. This is a good way to finish. We talk about those three fronts. 
but we are already working on two other projects that is related to all of this. But Another tease? I'm not ready. Uh. Yes, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. But, um, well, that's great. We have, there's a cliffhanger there, so we'll have to follow up in the future and find out. Yeah, maybe in three months, four months from now, but, uh, you know, this is the foundation. So what can you do on top of this foundation? Yeah. Uh, we already have been exploring and considering those things. So uh, really exciting. Very cool. Well, thank you, Jose, for your time. And thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use or on your social media so others can discover the show more easily.